Glory to Jesus Christ. Annunciation Byzantine Catholic Parish presents Light of the East, a program revealing how the Eastern Catholic Churches have nourished the Roman Catholic Churches and today's world in profound ways through their histories, traditions, mysteries, and spirituality. Hello, I am Father Thomas J. Loya, pastor of Annunciation of the Mother of God Byzantine Catholic Church in Homer Glen, Illinois, and this is a story of the Eastern Churches, an inspiring story of faith, courage, intrigue, mystery, spirituality, dissension, and reconciliation. But most of all, this is an expression of a great experience of faith through our unique divine liturgy. Join with me now as we look toward the Light of the East. Light of the East is also supported by Eastern Christian Publications, where you can find the prayers of the Catholic Byzantine Daily Office at ecpubs.com and by easternchristianmedia.com, a broadband network for you to learn more about the Eastern Catholic Churches. That's easternchristianpublications.com. Glory to Jesus Christ. Welcome to Light of the East. I am Father Thomas Loyo, your host. As you are listening to me today, I am with my good friends Joseph and Peggy Murray, who conduct these wonderful pre-Cana, Couples in Cana sessions. And once again, I'm working with them, with many couples, young couples, couples of different ages who are preparing for marriage or who have been married for a while. And I'm also with the Chickens of Yuba City, California. That's a bit of an inside joke, but those of you who are listening out in California probably know what I mean. So my salute to the chickens of Yuba City and to my good friends, the Joe and Peggy Murray and everyone taking part in this weekend of pre-Cana, couples in Cana. But in the Byzantine liturgical calendar, this is also the Sunday after the exaltation of the cross. See, as always, we have a buildup, we have the climactic moment, and then we have the falling action. In other words, we have the Sunday before the cross, even the Saturday before, and we have the exaltation of the cross itself, which even both lungs of the church did celebrate this year, as they always do around September 14th. And then we have the Saturday and the Sundays after the cross, so we come out of this great celebration of the cross. And that's that basic rhythm I have talked about in this program very often. It's a rhythm of life. I call it the bell curve, which is really an S-curve turned on its side. Something moves up, there's a climactic moment, and there's a movement outwards, and then it basically recycles again. It's a basic rhythm of life. It's the rhythm of the shores of the sea. It's a rhythm of a lot of things in life. It's a rhythm that's used in art. It's used in music. It seems to be one of those secrets, kind of like the golden mean that God has woven into his order of creation, the S-curve or the bell curve. And in the Eastern churches, we're very, very good at this. We're very good at having a buildup, a climactic moment, and then a period in which we sort of resolve or come out of that moment. We kind of preserve the residue of it. And then we, of course, then go into the next feast day, the next observance, the next bell curve or the next S curve, whichever way you want to look at it. Whether you have it standing up or turning on its side, it's basically that curve. Something moves in climactic moment, and then moves out. 
When it comes to the cross, there are differences in how the East and West approach the cross. Now, as always, differences are not in terms of fundamental belief or wildly different differences. They're not contradictory. They're complementary. We need each other. We both bring a perspective to any particular issue or feast day or event from the scripture, anything in the church, anything in terms of our belief, we come to in the both lungs of the church from different perspectives, complementary perspectives, but we land or end up at the same place. So it's not a difference of belief. Oftentimes people ask me, what's the difference between the Byzantine church or the Eastern rites and the Latin rite church? Well, it's a matter of emphasis, of perspective. It's not a matter of basic belief. When it comes to the spirituality of the cross in the Eastern churches, well, first of all, if we look even at the cross itself, the image itself in Eastern churches, you'll see the cross on the outside of churches. You'll see it on the inside of churches. You won't see it as common as it is in the Latin Rite Church, and you'll see it usually in a different way. In the East, the cross is usually depicted oftentimes without any image of Christ on it, and sometimes there is an image. And if there is an image, it's always painted. It's never a three-dimensional representation. There's nothing wrong with three-dimensional representations. It's just that that is the expression of the West, the Western art. The East always stayed with a two-dimensional form, what we might call a flattened art form. In other words, something just on the surface. At, at most, they would have what was called a relief. A relief is where you have an image that comes off the surface in kind of a convex way. In other words, it, it protrudes outward, but it doesn't come off the surface entirely. In other words, it is not three-dimensional. But most of the time, you have just a two-dimensional representation. That's, of course, what iconography is. And the reason for that is because three dimensions is how we experience and see things in this side of eternity. The Eastern churches like to move beyond the confines of this world so that we get a peek into the next life, which is actually without dimension or beyond the three dimensions. It's dimensionless. It's timeless. And so we use the two dimensions so that we don't have the same confines of dimension as we do in this side of eternity. But also, it gives us a sense of being able to portray the next life and this life converging. Whenever you have iconography in the Eastern churches, you always have basically this both and. And that's a very, very strong thread woven through all of Eastern theology, that strong thread of Something is both and. It's this and that at the same time, and we kind of live in the convergence point. So in Eastern iconography, you have the design, the composition of all the figures in the icon in such a way where there's basically a hieratic and a narrative. In other words, you have the part that is static, usually the depiction of Christ or the Virgin Mary. Most of the time it is with Christ where he seems to be static because God Jesus is God, and God is unchanging because God is perfect. Below that, usually have the narrative. In other words, the part that has to do with this life, people that we know, people like ourselves, who of course became great saints, but the apostles, for example, or disciples. And there's always some movement there. In other words, there's a story being told. It's as if you're watching a movie. There's some kind of action, some kind of pathos expression on the part of the people in the narrative. With Christ, there is not. It's more expressionless. It doesn't mean it's cold or boring. It just means that it's beyond all expression. It's, it's immovable. It's impassable. It stays the same because it is perfect. So even in the depictions of 
Christ on the cross in Eastern churches and the Eastern iconography, you have these same two both-and elements. You have Christ painted on the cross as a dominant figure, so he's going to be the largest. And again, it's a flat figure. It's painted on a surface of a cross. And beneath him are going to be some of the figures that were standing at the cross, such as the holy women. You know, there were several Marys at the cross, including Mary, the mother of Christ. And usually there's St. John to the left of Christ, if you are looking at it from the point of view of the cross itself. So we have to the left of Christ, John of the Cross, we have to his right, the Virgin Mary, accompanied by a couple of the holy women. Now, sometimes you have other figures in there as well, kind of in the background. You usually have two angels above Christ's head, and also the moon and the sun. And along with that are sometimes you have the depiction of the two thieves. Remember the good thief that repented and went to heaven, and the other thief that did not. But the narrative has a lot of pathos to it. A lot. You see the Virgin Mary with one hand on her face in utter grief. And the liturgical texts, especially on Great and Holy Friday, articulate this mother's grief in a very beautiful, moving, and profound way. But it's always the both and, especially in Eastern theology. We also have her other hand, which is pointing very nobly and very assuredly to Christ. Basically, she's saying, yes, I am in grief, but this is the way. This is the answer. This is my son. This is the Messiah who must endure this to save us. So you have the convergence of this resignation, this understanding, this deep understanding on the part of the Virgin Mary as to what's really happening here on the cross, what her son is really doing, why he must do it, together with a mother's grief, the grief at the sight of her son so unjustly treated, her innocent, perfect, beautiful son so unjustly treated. In fact, we have a beautiful hymn during the time of the cross. We call it The Grieving Mother. There's also another one called, Now Do I Go to the Cross, Removing Hymns. On the cross, as Christ is hanging there, his body actually is in that bell curve, that S-curve. It slumps very dramatically towards the mother of God. In other words, towards the right of Christ, to Christ's right. As if he were moving in the direction of his mother, and his mother is pointing to him. Remember, on the cross, he looks down at her and says, Woman, behold your son. Son, behold your mother. And on the cross, there is, as the great fathers of the church taught us, there is, mystically speaking, the great consummation of a mystical marriage between Christ, who now becomes the new Adam, and his mother, who becomes a new Eve, which is why he called her not mother, but woman. You know, the only other time he called her woman was at the marriage of Cana, the wedding of Cana, Christ's first miracle. And at that first miracle, he said to her, woman, my hour is not yet come. His hour would come on the cross where he had once again referred to her as woman, which is also the word for Eve. She becomes the new Eve. And Christ on the cross is not shown with a lot of goriness, a lot of blood. There is indication of his wounds. In Western art, there's a lot more detail. The wounds are a lot more graphic, and that's for the reasons of Western theology. But in the East, we don't emphasize the wounds. They are there, but they're almost understated. And the eyes of Christ on the crucifix, the icon that's on the cross, the eyes of Christ are painted in a way where it looks almost as though they're not entirely closed. This is to indicate that he is, in a sense, sleeping. 
Just as we say for the assumption of the mother of God in the Eastern churches, we call her assumption the dormition. In other words, the falling asleep. Because what the Eastern theology is saying through its iconography, remember, Eastern iconography is always ushering our gaze towards the ultimate meaning of something, not just the narrative, the event itself, but how does it engage us in the ultimate meaning, in the ultimate destiny? What this is saying, the de-emphasizing of the wounds in the blood, even though they still are there, and the fact that Christ's eyes are more like a sleep than a death, what this is indicating is that this death by Christ was, again, like everything else, a mystical one. It, It was an earthly death, but not just that. It was a sleep, a Sabbath's rest, as the liturgical texts say, one that will be redemptive, one that already has the hints of life in it. The suffering and the death is not so front and center, although it is there. But what's more important is how and to what this image is pointing to. We're going to talk more about the cross in Eastern spirituality when we return. I'm Father Thomas Leon on Light of the East. Light of the East mission is Christianity's reunion. And to tell the story of the Eastern lung of the Catholic Church, we need your support. In order to keep Light of the East on the air, you can make a donation now by going to ByzantineCatholic.com. That's ByzantineCatholic.com. And then donate securely using any major credit card. With your help, we can keep Light of the East's illumination bright. It's no secret that Father Loya and other speakers from the Tabor Life Institute are available to speak at your parish or group on marriage and family topics seen through the lens of St. John Paul II's Theology of the Body. Other topics include Eastern Christian spirituality and the significance of art in the church. The Tabor Life Institute can arrange for marriage encounters, parish missions, and can help your parish facilitate teen faith formation in either English or Spanish. For Father Loya and other speakers, contact the Tabor Life Institute by writing to taborlife at earthlink.net. That's Tabor spelled T-A-B-O-R, life, at earthlink.net. To help support Tabor Life's ministry, go to taborlife.org and click on the Donate tab. Tabor Life is a 5013C charitable organization. You're listening to Father Thomas Loya on Light of the East. Welcome back to Light of the East. I am Father Thomas Loyer, your host. As we come out of that part of the bell curve, the S-curve of the celebration of the cross, which today is called the Sunday after the exaltation, we're looking at the cross in terms of the Eastern approach and showing how, as always, there is that element of the both and. The East is always trying to present to us the two worlds coming together. The, the world beyond eternity and our life here, and how eternity penetrates this life here, how, how this life on this earth is a participation in the ultimate afterlife, even though it is not fulfilled here. It can't be. It's only fulfilled in the afterlife. We're talking about the iconography, how it points to that, but also how we actually speak about and experience the cross in Eastern Christian spirituality. 
You notice something when you look at the icon of a crucifix. Look at any crucifix itself, even in the Western churches, which uses oftentimes a more three-dimensional figure, you know, the corpus of Christ on the cross. And by the way, anytime I compare things, remember, I'm comparing the complementary riches of both lungs of the church. We're never saying one is better than the other. They're just complementary. They're different. And they arrived at their particular expressions through their own theology, which developed over time. So there's lots of reasons behind the why and the differences between the two lungs of the church. But if you look at the corpus or if you look at an icon of the crucifixion, you'll see that the two bars intersect. Let's face it, there's a vertical and a horizontal, and they intersect at a certain point. And at that intersection, if you notice, is the heart of Christ as he hangs on the cross. From head to heart is where the cross intersects. And it's very providential that Jesus Christ, for many ways, chose the cross as the instrument through which he would purchase redemption for us. He would pay the ransom for us. Many reasons. We may not even know all of them, of course, in God's divine wisdom, but certainly one of those reasons is because the cross, precisely because it points in these different directions. It means that Christ and his message is for all and for all eternity. It has no limits, no bounds to it. Think a little bit of geometry. Straight lines, lines continue on, right? They sense have no end, theoretically. So the vertical line of the cross points to eternity. There's no end to it. It points to what does not end. The horizontal bars of the cross stretch out in each direction as if in an internal embrace, Christ's arms as if going on, extending out for eternity to embrace all mankind for all time and take it to his heart, take it to redemption. He's also embracing all of sin from all time and nailing it to the cross and breaking its power once and for all. Part of the genius of the cross and why we hold it up during this time of exaltation is because it gives us the key to life, that life is lived in the both and, that the cross is both what is awful and suffering, yet redemption at the same time, that the cross points upward to heaven, and at the same time it points to our reality here on earth. It points vertically and laterally, and the two intersect This is why we must always speak of and look at and embrace life and interface with life with that integrated both-and view. That yes, we live in this world, but reality is not the drudgery of this world. A lot of people like to say that. Oh, you know, you got to get into reality. That's reality. Life is tough. That's not reality. We exist in this world, in this dimension, but that reality has been touched, penetrated by the presence of God. And so to be real, to actually be realistic, to live in the real world, is to live in such a way as to see the incarnation, to see life sacramentally. And once again, the cross reminds us of that. In fact, we say during this time of year in the Byzantine church, the repeated refrain, the theme of this exaltation of the cross is, we bow to your cross, O Lord, and we glorify your resurrection. Imagine, we speak of the cross and bowing to it, of repentance, 
yet we speak of the glory, the triumph in the same breath. And it's all there in the cross. And so we say what we're seeing. The liturgical text, the prayer, echoes what's going on in the crucifix, in the icon of the crucifixion. It is that junction, that union, that meeting point between two complementary realities. And indeed, that is the key to all of life. Things do not live, really, in an either-or dimension. And we insist on doing that. We insist on living in, in a bipolar way. You know, Democrat versus Republican, conservative versus liberal, man versus woman, winner versus loser. And where I am here at our Light of the East studios in Chicago, it's the greatest dichotomy of all. Are you a White Sox fan or a Cubs fan? Never the two shall meet. Well, that's not life. Life is in the convergence of complementary things. You might say in paradox or in the convergence of opposites, but it's not really so much opposite as it is convergence. Convergence of complementary things. And that is true in every aspect of life. Think of marriage. In marriage, which is a participation in and an inflection of the very life of the Trinity, two people always remain distinct individuals, the husband and wife. And sometimes that becomes problematic, but they still remain two distinct, unique individuals. Their identities are never blurred, yet they become one. Now, how can you have two distinct things become one yet remain distinct? Well, that's what the Trinity is, God who is Trinity. Three distinct persons never becoming confused in their natures, in their beings, never fusing into each other, remaining always distinct, yet one God. Marriage is a sharing in that. So marriage is also both and. Yes, it is two individuals who must respect each other as individuals, seek each other's needs as individuals, yet they have to always remember that they are one and must be of one mind when it comes to family, the household, their marriage, to have a common vision. This is the key, one of the keys to happy marriage. A lot of people don't know this. That's why they have a lot of unhappiness, because they don't really gaze at the mystery of the cross and apply that and see the parallel in their marriage. That if the cross can be suffering and death, yet victory at the same time, if it can be the verticality that points to heaven and yet the horizontal that points to this life, if they can't see the convergence of those, and they're not going to be able to see that their marriage can be a both-and proposition, so to speak. But this becomes important and necessary for marriage. It becomes important and necessary for everything. A priest, for example, a priest, especially one who is celibate, or say a celibate religious, a nun or a monk, they are celibate yet spousal at the same time. Don't we call, especially in Eastern monasticism, don't we call female monks mother? After being in a monastery for a certain length of time, they are called mother, not just sister, but mother. Don't we call priests father? Well, how can they be celibate and be fathers? How can nuns be celibate and be mothers? To be a father or a mother, legitimately, you have to be able to be married. You must have a spouse. Well, how can this be if they're celibate? Well, it's understood by living in the both and. Yes, they are celibate, but yet they are mystically married. They are mystically mother and spouse. So you see, this mystery that we see in the cross, an emphasis on seeing, 
That's why we gaze upon the icon, we meditate upon these things because they have in them the secrets of life. We take the vision of the cross itself, that's why we hold it up. We hold it up as a contradiction to the world, we hold it up as a blueprint. We tell the world, you see this? which is a symbol of suffering and death and shame and everything bad, this is also our victory. This is the way. You want freedom? You must pass through what seems to be the shackles of suffering, of self-discipline, of living the cross. That is the way to freedom. Yes, the cross is a sign of contradiction, but is the secret of life. And life as the cross shows us and its depiction in the iconography of the church, the cross provides us that magic blueprint of life, that life is lived mystically in the both and, not in the either or. I'm Father Thomas Loya on Light of the East. To hear Light of the East again, visit ByzantineCatholic.com and click on the Features and Programs tab and on iTunes. Thank you for listening to Light of the East. We encourage you to tell a friend about Light of the East and to visit ByzantineCatholic.com. Light of the East is produced by ADC Media. Bishop Robert Barron on the Priesthood. For the first thousand years, there were married priests within the church. There still are married priests under certain circumstances, you know, so it's not absolutely necessary. However, I'm a supporter of it, and I wouldn't want us to move in the direction of kind of a, hey, you know, optional, some do it, some don't. I get it. And I, I go back to Paul, and it's Paul's words that are actually in the ordination ritual, you know, about an undivided life, undivided life, a total gift. I have nothing but the greatest respect for married people. In fact, when I hear the term heroic sanctity, when they talk about saints, I think of parents right away, you know, who give themselves to their kids. But there's something, I think, pure and simple and undivided about the life of celibacy. It's a radical conformity unto the celibate Christ. Why am I celibate? My ultimate answer, because Jesus was, and I'm conformed to him. The leading Catholic voices are on EWTN Radio. Thank you for listening. Next week, we will return to the light of the East. To learn more about Annunciation Byzantine Catholic Parish, visit our website, byzantinecatholic.com, where you will also find an archive of all of our programs. In order to continue Light of the East with its mission of Christianity's reunion, we need your support with a donation. Any amount will be a blessing. Please make out a check to Light of the East Radio and send it to Light of the East, 14610 Will Cook Road, Homer Glen, Illinois, 60491. That's Light of the East, 14610 Will Cook Road, spelled W-I-L-L-C-O-O-K Road, Homer Glen, Illinois. Or donate online on the homepage of ByzantineCatholic.com. From the Light of the East, a new dawn of unity is in sight. God bless you, go with God, and may God grant you many happy years. Oh!